Section 88 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Valerie Marino. The World Story, Volume 13, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 88. Lee's Surrender, 1865. By Morris Schaeff. Conversations between Longstreet and Lee as to Grant's prospective terms continued in broken sentences till Babcock was seen approaching. And then, as Lee still seemed apprehensive of humiliating demands, Longstreet suggested to him that in that event he should break off the interview and tell Grant to do his worst. The thought of another round seemed to brace him, and he rode with Colonel Marshall to meet the Union commander. So closes Longstreet's account of that incident. Lee directed Marshall to find a suitable house for the conference, and he chose McLean's, the best in the town, a brick building with elms and locusts about it, and rose bushes blooming on the lawn, with a cool, inviting veranda. It stood facing west, the last in the village. Marshall sent his orderly back to notify Lee, and he and Babcock soon were seated in the parlor, the left-hand room as you enter the hall. Meanwhile, Traveler's humane groom removed his bit, and he began to nip the fresh springing grass in the dooryard, while Babcock's orderly sat mounted out in the road to notify Grant on his arrival. Ord, Sheridan, Custer, Griffin, and with him my friend Merrill and their staffs were up on the road only a few hundred yards away and in full view. Grant, after dispatching Babcock, mounted at once and followed the Walker's Church Road till he came to the Lagrange Road. This he took to the left and then struck down across Plain Run to the Lynchburg Road. As he passed to the left of the first New York Dragoons, someone shouted, There comes General Grant! He rode directly to Sheridan's group, saying as he drew rein, How are you, Sheridan? First rate, thank you, how are you? replied Sheridan, with an expressive smile, and then he told Grant what had happened, and that he believed it was a ruse on the part of the Confederates to get away. But Grant answered that he had no doubt of the good faith of Lee, and asked where he was. In that brick house, responded Sheridan. Well, then, we'll go over, said Grant, and asked them all to go along with him. This must have been about one o'clock, for Lyman says that at two-twenty, Colonel Kellogg, Sheridan's chief commissary, accompanied by a member of Lee's staff, brought a note from Grant to Meade to suspend hostilities. Cincinnati, sired by the king of the turf, Lexington, with his delicate ears, high and thoroughbred port, led the way, and at his side was Rienzi, carrying Sheridan, for some reason or other, perhaps because as a boy I played with the colts, on the old home farm, those horses, from the day I saw Grant on Cincinnati and Sheridan on Rienzi in the wilderness, have seemed like acquaintances to me, and now it pleases my fancy to put them with Traveller in a pasture far, far beyond the reach of thundering guns or lamenting bugles, a pasture that remains eternally green. As Grant mounted the steps and entered the hall, Babcock, who had seen his approach, opened the door. Sheridan, Ord, and the other officers remained outside and took seats on two benches, one on either side of the door and the steps of the veranda. Grant, about five feet eight inches tall, his square shoulders inclined to stoop, 
was without a sword, wore a soldier's dark blue flannel displaying a waistcoat of like material, and ordinary top boots with trousers inside. Boots and clothing were spattered with mud, and in his memoirs, with his usual unstudied frankness, he says, in my rough traveling suit, the uniform of a private, with the straps of a lieutenant general, bullion bordered rectangles holding on their ground of black velvet, one large and two smaller stars, I must have contrasted strangely with a man so handsomely dressed, six feet high and of faultless form. But this was not a matter that I thought of until afterwards. Never was a great man less self-conscious than he, though, as I have observed elsewhere, while at the head of the Army of the Potomac, he maintained his dignity day in and day out, without charging the air of his headquarters with the usual pompous military fuss. This I know from experience, and although I was a mere boy, had he shown any affections, I believe I should have noticed them. The kind and cut of his beard, deep brown in shade, the way his hair lay, and the outline of his face are familiar but his eyes so charitable, direct, and his voice so softly vibrant, voracious, and sweet, must have been seen and heard to be duly appreciated. Under the depths of his quiet and modest reserve lay a persistent and intense doggedness of purpose, as prompt and unconquerable as Lee's pride and burning enthusiasm, and thus strangely balanced stood those types and creations of american society of their generation facing each other grant greeted lee very civilly says marshall and i have no doubt that he and his superb kinsman and chief at once felt the charm of that gentle inflexible composure which every crowned head of the world who afterward met him felt and remarked upon lee said to grant with his customary urbanity that he remembered him well in the old army to which Grant, with his usual modesty, replied that he remembered him perfectly, but thought it unlikely that he had attracted Lee's attention sufficiently to be remembered after such a long interval. Lee soon found himself in a stream of pleasant reminiscences with Grant about the Mexican War, and it could not have been otherwise, for there was something so quietly companionable in Grant's manner that everyone whom he met, informally and socially, always joined him, in his unpremeditated talk, and I think I can see Lee's brown, vigilant eyes kindle with inquisitive wonder as in the course of their conversation they fell on him. The same wonder had been in Meade's and every old officer's eyes, save Sherman's, since Grant's star broke through its dark eclipse. There stood the man whose marvelous career had started wave after wave of camp gossip in both armies, the hero of Fort Donelson. Vicksburg and Chattanooga, now about to receive the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia and leave a name shining unchallenged and unclouded at the climax of the war. And yet, in the full glow of this impending fame, mild, unconscious of self, and unpretentious, it was Lee who finally had to remind Grant of the object of their meeting and suggest that he put his terms in writing another proof of Grant's inherent delicacy, which made him reluctant to broach a painful subject. Grant asked for his manifold orderly book, and on receiving it took a seat at the little center table and rapidly, with only a single momentary pause, wrote his terms. He says that when he put his pen to its task, he did not know the first word he should make use of in his writing, 
The terms were as follows. Appomattox, C.T.H.V.A., April 9, 1865. General R. Lee, commanding C.S.A. General, in accordance with the substance of my letter to you of the 8th inst., I propose to receive the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia on the following terms, to wit, rolls of all the officers and men to be made in duplicate, one copy to be given to an officer to be designated by me, the other to be retained by such officer or officers as you may designate, the officers to give their individual paroles, not to take up arms against the government of the United States until properly exchanged, and each company or regimental commander to sign a like parole for the men of their commands, the arms, artillery, and public property to be parked and stacked and turned over to the officers appointed by me to receive them. This will not embrace the sidearms of the officers, nor their private horses or baggage, this done, each officer and man will be allowed to return to his home, not to be disturbed by the United States authorities, so long as they observe their paroles and the laws in force where they may reside. Very respectfully, U.S. Grant, Lieutenant General. When he came to the end of the sentence, closing with, appointed by me to receive them, he raised his eyes, and they fell on Lee's lion-headed, stately sword, and then he wrote, this will not embrace the side-arms of the officers, nor their private horses. Grant probably thought of Traveler, and the pang it would give him to part with Cincinnati were he in Lee's place. It is needless for me to point out the significance of the last sentence, binding as it did the passions and pledging the honor of his country. In short, it meant that there should be no judicial bloodshed, no gibbets, and no mourning exiles. These terms, in the light of all that, might have happened after the assassination of mr lincoln which took place within five days of the surrender lent elevation repose and dignity to humanity and i have no doubt the eyes of the country's guardian angel welled with tears of joy grant finishes the terms rises goes to lee and hands him the open order book remaining seated lee lays it on the table beside him and with deliberation takes out his spectacles and adjusts them. Slowly and carefully he reads line after line. All eyes are on Lee. A hush silent as death prevails. When Lee came to the end, he raised his eyes, looked at Grant, and remarked, This will have a very happy effect upon my army. Grant then said he would have the terms copied in ink unless he had some suggestions to make. Lee replied one only, that the cavalry and artillerymen owned their own horses, and he would like to understand whether or not they would be allowed to retain them. Grant told him the terms as written would not allow of this, but as he thought this was about the last of the war, he would instruct the officers in carrying them out to allow everyone claiming to own a horse or mule to take the animal to his home, so that they could put in a crop to tide them over through the next winter, which he feared might be one of want and suffering, owing to the wide devastation. Lee is reported to have said, then, this will have the best possible effect upon the men. It will be very gratifying and will do much toward conciliating our people. While the terms were being copied, Lee told Grant that he had a number of prisoners whom he should be glad to release, as he had no provisions for them or his own men 
who had been living for the last few days on parched corn and what they could gather along the route. Grant asked him to send the prisoners within his lines and said that he would take steps at once to have Lee's army supplied, but was sorry to say that he was entirely out of forage for the animals. In inquiry as to the number of men to be fed, Lee was unable to answer, and Grant asked, Suppose I send over twenty-five thousand rations, will that be enough? More than enough, replied Lee. Grant directed Morgan, his chief commissary, to see that Lee's army was fed. By this time the terms were copied, and when they were signed it was about half-past two or three o'clock. Lee shook hands with Grant, bowed to the other officers, and left the room. Colonel Payne of Ord's staff says, as Lee came out of the room and stopped for a moment in the doorway, those of us on the porch arose and complimented him with the usual salute to a superior officer. He seemed pleased at this mark of respect, and looking to the right and left, he raised his own hat in recognition of the attention. As he drew on a pair of apparently new gloves, he stood so close to me that his initials worked in white silk on the guard of the gauntlet were plainly observed. Having signaled for his horse, Lee stood on the lowest step of the veranda while the groom was rebridling him, and from time to time his eyes rested on the leaning fields, spotted by the colors of the army. He had just surrendered. He smote his gauntleted hands together unconsciously. When Traveler was led up, he mounted him at once. Grant then stepped down from the veranda, and as he passed Lee, touched his hat. Lee returned the salute and rode away. Marshall says that if General Grant and the other officers who were present at the McLean house had studied how not to offend, they could not have borne themselves with more good breeding. End of section 88. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Valerie Marino.